So while I'm driving, I play a silly little game with myself. Maybe you play something like this as well, or maybe you look at me with sympathy. When I'm stopped at a stoplight or a stop sign, I, I can't resist looking over at the person driving the car next to me. So maybe you don't do this. Maybe you stay fixed in case you know they see you looking. But what I do is I, I, I have a quick glance at the person, and then I try to see the picture that's in my head. Right? I, I see if I can remember what the person looks like who's in the car beside me. And then if I have time before the light turns green or whatever, I look back to see if what I thought on first glance is actually what the person looks like. And you're looking at me sort of going, there's help for that sort of thing, right? But, but I think it's, it's to do with our sort of human physiology and psychology that we have been used to seeing so many things over and over and over again that when we see something, some object, some person, or whatever it is, there is something in our minds already that is a framework. So into that framework, we now piece the new information. So it's not that every time we see a human being, it's the first time we've seen a human being, it's another human being, and so we sort of fix that new image into the existing set of, of film that's in our heads, and I think that's what's going on in my head. Um, every now and then someone looks at me and they sort of look as though I'm creeping them out. So I, I guess I'll stop, but it's, but it's a lot of fun. Um, what do I see before I look? So what does that mean? It was a simple little person's comment in an editorial early in the year, or at the end of last year, that I noticed. And it, it really got me thinking. And the impact of that is to say, when I look at something after I, I've seen it, there often is a gap between what I saw and then what I looked at. And it has helped me to sort of pause and say, whether I'm looking at people or situations or scenarios, what do I see, first of all? And then when I look, what do I really see? I mean, what, what is all in behind what is simply what I see and then feeds what I really understand as I am looking. It has slowed me down in many situations as I have been careful to stop and say, okay, wait a minute, what I, what I saw, what I thought, what I presumed um, needs to be held in check until I really look, until I really listen, until I really pay attention. And many, many times what I thought as I simply saw something or noticed something, wasn't the whole picture at all. And um, it was in looking deeper into a situation or listening more carefully to a person that I really got the full story. So that's what we're talking about today as we encounter um, a scenario that James presents to us where a rich man, well-dressed, arrives at church. And as Susan read to us, um, the person is greeted by, oh, wonderful, it's great to see you here. Come and sit in this very important spot. 
And yet there's a poor, shabby person who comes, and that person is simply passed off. And in all of that, James is saying, what do you see before you look? And he says, if you would really look carefully, you would understand that this is a problem, that the rich person that you have celebrated and welcomed is one of the ones who oppresses you. And so you have to go much farther than what you simply presume or what simply is presented. And in this case, he says, the gold ring and the fine clothes, they betray a terrible story in behind because there was oppression going on. And James says, you should be aware of that. You know all about that. And so act differently about how you view one another, how you value one another how you kind of score one another. So I want to suggest this morning that there are simple ways that we we maybe need to engage in more than the seeing, more than the immediate impression or the, the immediate sense in living our lives in relationship with one another. I'm coupling it with the story in 1 Samuel chapter 16, which is the really interesting story about Jesse uh, who is basically a nondescript person in a nondescript town but he has a lot of sons and Samuel is sent by God to choose one of Jesse's sons to be the king of Israel Um, Samuel says the Lord has sent me to find out who is here who he has chosen and we're going to change the whole regime and one of your sons is going to be the, the next king. And so it's a great story. It's a story of, well, here's this first one that comes along, and Samuel looks and says, wow, this job is easy. I didn't think it would happen so quickly. But obviously, by what Samuel saw, by his first impression, by his already um, spinning film of all the things he's seen and thought in life, Samuel says, this is obviously the guy. He's perfect to be king. And um, God says, no, that's not the one. And so he goes through the sons one by one by one until he gets to the end of the family, as far as he's concerned. And he says to Jesse, well, God has not indicated that any one of these is to be king. Do you have any more sons? It was sort of like a desperate answer, a desperate question. And Jesse says, well, yeah, there's this one who's out working in the fields, but surely he's not the one. And so the wonderful drama of the story of King David begins by David being presented by Jesse, his father, and God says to Samuel, and then Samuel speaking as the prophet of God, that's the one. Not the one that I thought would be the one that was God's chosen. Not the one that had all the right credentials. Not the one that has the, you know, the the super CV to present. But this one, this is the one that, that God is presenting and endorsing. And the important editorial in the whole story is that God says, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And that is a theme in the stories of the Bible that is very, very poignant and and powerful. So many times 
what appears to be the case is not really the case at all. And God is the only one when he sees a situation, when he sees a person who can immediately gaze through the appearance or um, the events themselves and see what is in behind because God looks at the heart. If we could learn that lesson, we would be well ahead in our lives, wouldn't we? If, if we really understood that no matter what we think, no matter how we are impressed, God looks past what's on the outside and he sees the heart. He sees everything that's in there. So that ought to be just kind of a wake-up thought when I'm impressed with myself, maybe if you're impressed with yourself. You ever look in the mirror and think, boy, that's a good-looking guy, or, oh, that's a beautiful girl. I do, often. It's Annabeth in the reflection, of course. Right? <laughs> and the truth is, God would say, yeah, but God looks at the heart. Does that person have a beautiful heart? Does that person have a soft heart? Does that person have a kind heart? Does that person have the heart of God? And God makes it really clear to Samuel that he looks past all of the outward stuff and goes right to the chase. He goes right to the heart and he says, God looks at the heart. As I think about that this morning, there are a few parts of the story, um, the story of what impresses us or what appears to us, and the story in back of that. There's, first of all, the, the true story, and, and that's what we have in James. Uh, James says, you see a rich man well-dressed, but there's a true story behind that rich man well-dressed. And there's the beginning, I think, in, in trying to um, not only pay attention to what's before me, but to look at what I see. So what do I see before I look? I need to immediately discount that and say, it, it really doesn't matter what I see, because I'm sure there's always something to be looked at. There's something deeper, more profound, um, fuller than, than I'm able immediately to, to grasp. And, and one of the ways that we would do that is to ask ourselves, well, what is the true story? When I meet someone, I immediately size that person up. You do too, right? Um, you think, oh, I'd like to talk with this person. No, I don't want to talk to this person. Um, I'm impressed by that person. I, I'm not impressed by this person. I've heard good things about this person or I've heard kind of sad things about this person. And so we all of a sudden sort of get our bearings based on what we have gathered so far, but it is not complete, and it very often is not the true story. Um, the true story is that the rich were oppressing the poor. The rich were oppressing the Christians. And James says, even though that's happening, you somehow are able to, to not go farther than what appears to you, what, what looks on the outside as though it's a good thing. So w what is the true story would be a way for us to begin. And so I've called this talk the rich man's ring. So maybe we ought to be watching ourselves this week and say, well, was there a rich man's ring that fooled me? 
that I noticed and thought, oh, impressive, right? The second aspect, though, is, is way more subtle, I think, and it's, it's the, the fact that there's an invisible story. There is not only the, the full story, but there's an invisible story that we don't see, and it's not even that we can necessarily gather information and facts and history and say, okay, now I understand. But there's a world that is going on that is invisible, and that world is behind and around every person and every person's experience and behavior. So I think about that, there, there are a few stories in the Bible that really talk about this powerfully. Um, I remember in the Old Testament, there's a story of the king of Aram who is worried to death because the enemy, notably Elisha, God's prophet, seems to know everything that's going on. He seems to have eyes everywhere. So the king finally says, this is nuts. I can't do anything without this guy knowing about it. If I, if I you know, do something in my bedroom, he sees. If I decide something you know, in confidence, he knows about it. So I'm going to kill him. So the king of Aram, the Arameans, came after Elisha. And Elisha's servant um, realized that they were coming. And he was terrified. So he went to Elisha, his master, and he said, we're going to die. We're both going to die here. There's this onslaught of the Arameans, and they've got wind of the fact that you are a prophet of the Most High God, and so the king wants to kill you. And do you remember what Elisha says to his servant? Don't worry. There are more of us than them. Like the servant thought Elisha had lost his mind. He looks around and he says, Elisha, I don't know who you see. There's me, and I'm not a, a good guy with a sword. And there's you. And, you know, apologies, but you're a pretty good prophet, but I've never seen you fight. And Elisha prays. He says, Lord, open his eyes that he may see. And when God opens Elisha's servant's eyes, he looks on the mountainside, and the text tells us that there is a legion of horses and chariots of fire around Elisha. And the king of Aram is roundly defeated because Elisha saw an invisible story in behind the events. Someone has said, that we live now in modern times Christianity with a split-level view of life and the world and God. By that he means that we think there's the here and now and us and, and our world and the events of our lives, and there's God and heaven somewhere else, like a split-level. And this person's contention is that the ancient mind and the Jewish mind did not conceive of reality as being split level. The ancient mind was more like a Celtic mind in which the other than what we see and experience and what we do see and experience are intertwined. That we live in the middle of a, of a cosmic drama that is not featured by 
the world and its events and our lives and events that simply get done here and we hope that when it's all over we go somewhere else that we call heaven. So Tom Wright calls it um, the, the mission that we have is not to get us to heaven but it's to get heaven here. And it's a beautiful way to conceive of this. That the world and the heavens, the visible and invisible, the now and then, the present and future, are not a split-level entity. They're not a split-level view. They are simply, they're, they're integrated. And the invisible world is, is as real here as what seems real to us. What do I see before I look? Well, what I see before I look are tables and chairs and people. But if I could look past that to see the invisible world, I would see amazing things that God is here with us. N not in an, an idea sort of way, not in a concept, but he's, he's with us. Jesus said that the disciples shouldn't be so afraid and shouldn't be so worried and filled with anxiety as though he was going to leave them as orphans. He said, I'm going to come back to you. And in the person of his spirit, he came back and is back and is here. He's not in heaven, not away, not someplace else, but here. The visible world is present in the invisible world is present in the visible world. Many years ago, my, my daughter Alicia um, was driving a friend of hers and Brendan and Nicole, I think at that point his fiance, to uh, a, a youth camp up north. And, you know, it's, 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 begin, it's become sort of, you know, the notoriety of Alicia that she wasn't thought of as a great driver. And as they were driving, she was driving, her friend in the seat in front and Brendan and Nicole in the back. Alicia spun out on the highway, on the, four, on the 400 highway, on the way up to Muskoka. And her car, car caught fire. I mean, and, and they were disoriented as traffic was coming at them because now they were backwards. And um, in the middle of it all, um, Alicia said a man came walking up and told her, your car's on fire, get out. And, and they didn't know the car was on fire. They were just, you know, obviously completely unnerved and, and confused. So she said, we quickly got out of the car and the car went up in flames. And she said, Dad, the guy just disappeared. I said, well, where did he come from? I don't know. Where did he go? I don't know. And then she asked the provocative question, Dad, do you think it was an angel? Now, if it's a split-level world, we would just say, no, no, that's ridiculous. Some guy must have seen you. Well, wait a minute. It's a 400 highway. Cars are passing by. Like It happened in a split second. Why did a person appear from nowhere and disappear from there, having brought a message that saved them from the things that might have happened if they were caught in that fire. The humorous part of it is that the person, Alicia's friend who was with her, um, began to, to say, oh my goodness, I'm bleeding, I'm bleeding. She had hot fluid all over her and Alicia said, 
uh, it's just your hot chocolate, which it was. The backstory um, comes after the true story that is needing to be understood. James points that out. The invisible story is that there's a host of heaven in this kind of a integrated world. And the backstory is that in behind everybody's apparent story, there's a whole backstory, there's a whole life. And when we see a person without that backstory, the backstory of their whole life, we will undoubtedly shortchange them and ourselves. Many years ago now, with uh, Phil and, and Dean in, in part of the trip, we went to India, and we, we went to see a leper's colony. You know, we don't even think these days of the fact that there are actual lepers in the world. It's, it's, it's not leprosy in, in the traditional sense of what that means, but it is a disease. And there is this place where lepers live in Kolkata. And so we went there, and we, we saw and met some lepers. And immediately your heart is not only drawn to these people, but you're filled with, with sort of sadness and, and even dismay at what, what they are left with because having lost their sensation, many of them had, had injuries, burns, and, and all that, where they had lost limbs, they had lost hands, they had lost feet. Um, and it was, it was kind of a surreal visit, you know, when we were going to meet these, these folks. But we were told that we were going to come to their worship service. And the worship service with, was unquestionably one of the most profound, dynamic, exciting worship services I've ever seen. Lepers worshiping God, thanking God, praising God, celebrating God, raising their hands with no hands on the ends of their stub arms, raising them in joy, dancing even though they were hardly able to move on their legs. And I, I remember just sort of engaging one of them and, and seeing that, that w when I took the time to look past the backstory um, was, was full and vivid. This was a, a real person. This was a person who even now was experiencing God's joy for him and, and God's purpose in his life. And by the time that we were finished there, it, it didn't really occur to me that they were lepers. These were vibrant followers of Christ. They actually had, had set up a conference center. So they convened conferences for able-bodied people from all over that part of India. Um, and, and they were the hosts. They, these people, um, who by all appearances should not have been really functioning well, were more than functioning well and were ministering to other people that would come and visit them. What do I see before I look? The true story, the invisible story, the back story, and the future story. Again, several years ago, I was a pastor in Vancouver at the time. I had a phone call from a person, 
And this person said, Ian, I have a, a request to make of you that is quite an imposition. So I said, sure, what is it? He said, well, there's a young man in our church, and he's, um, he went to Ontario Bible College, and he's, he's gone now to Regent College in Vancouver, and he needs a mentor. And he said, the guy's not going to amount to anything. And that got my attention. He said, but he, he, he needs somebody to guide him. And I thought, okay, Irish enough to say, don't you tell me he's not going to amount to anything. I'll be the, the judge of that, right? Well, well, the result of it was we had a lovely relationship. <clears throat> and that young man has gone on to be a very successful and effective Christian counselor um, who has written a book. And it delights me to remember that conversation where that pastor had simply passed him off. He shouldn't have done it at the point in time in which he did. But he, he shouldn't have done it if, if he had only been able to look past what he saw. I don't know what he saw. I didn't ask what he saw. I didn't know why he thought this guy wouldn't amount to anything. Because certainly as soon as I met this person and as soon as we had a relationship and as I've watched him now for years and years and years, there was in this person the potential for great things and yet this pastor, if he had maybe said, unfortunately, what he thought, he might have said to this person, don't bother with education about this notion of being a theologian and all that. Just, you know, go and do whatever else you can do. Behind every person is a future story. So when I meet someone, I need to somehow or other be inspired by God to see what this person will be. When Samuel met David, um, he somehow or other was inspired by God to anoint him and declare over him that his future would be the blessing of God. Jesse, his father, would say, He's, he, you know, it's only David it's, it's not this guy or the next guy. It, he, you know, he, he's hardly even graduated from school. And yet Samuel said, hmm, God looks on the heart. And when God looks at a person's heart, he also sees how that heart will form into something that can be blessed by God, used by God, anointed by God, even in the case of David. As 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 we compare the stories of the kings of Israel, another king comes to mind whose name is Saul. And if you had seen Saul and realized that he was actually the, the anointed king of Israel, um, and remember God said, I didn't choose him, you did. So God's always got a little bit of the I told you so in him, right? Um, but Saul was head and shoulders above everyone else. And when when Saul and David had their interactions, um, Saul said, well, if you're going to be king, you're going to have to do a lot better than you will do right now. So you need some armor. And he puts his armor on David and says, so maybe that'll get you somewhere. I don't know how it's, what's going to happen. And David says, I, I, can't use your, I can't use your armor. I can't wear your armor. Well, you know, at least my sword, my helmet... 
all the stuff that goes with being a successful king. David says, I can't do that. that that's your armor, it's not mine. So what are you going to do? I have a slingshot. Imagine, I have a slingshot. What are you going to do with a slingshot? God saw in David that he was a man after his own heart, which is enormously heartening when we see some of the stupid stuff David did. But God still said, you know, he, I've, I've been looking for a person who is after my heart, and that's not Saul. I've been looking for a David, and I've been looking into David's future, and I see that what he brings to me is his weakness at this point and his slingshot and says, tell me about the great things in my future and I'll do them. God says, okay. Number one, there's a giant. What are you, what are you talking about? There's a giant. He's intimidating my armies. Go kill him. David's future was as bright as God's view of him having looked past his being a shepherd boy in the fields to being a man after God's own heart. And God said, can, can you all please pay attention to this? That man looks on the outward appearance and God looks at the heart. I don't think we learn that completely through all of our lives because we tend to do what we have been programmed and trained to do, which is to make judgments and assessments that are not after the heart of God that says, you may conclude that but I see the heart. So I challenge you this week as you meet a new person to just stop and say, well, what do I see before I look? Well, what I see, I, I'll acknowledge. Here's what I see. Here, here's the package. But when I look, what is there for me to really see? What is there for me to really um, peer at? and celebrate and wonder about and pray about and um, give assistance to as this person is not only what appears to me but there's, there is um, a, a true story, there's an invisible story about how God is going to use this person as this person gets to know him. There is a backstory that says, oh, if you knew where this person had come from, you, you, you could know that God is, is in this story and is going to bless and use this person. And there's a future story. There's a future story that lets us at the end of the day say, when we believed in people, this is what turned out. This, this is what God actually did. There's a great story that um, is uh, told to us in the book um, by Max Lucado. It's called The People of the Roses. I'm going to read it to you. It says this. John Blanchard stood up from the bench, straightened his army uniform, and studied the crowd of people making their way through Grand Central Station. He looked for the girl whose heart he knew, but whose face he didn't, the girl with the rose. His interest in her had begun 13 months before in a Florida library. Taking a book off the shelf, he found himself intrigued, not with the words of the book, but with the notes penciled in the margin. The soft handwriting reflected a thoughtful soul and an insightful mind. 
In the front of the book, he discovered the previous owner's name, Miss Hollis Maynell. With time and effort, he located her address. She lived in New York City. He wrote her a letter introducing himself and inviting her to respond. The next day, he was shipped overseas for service in World War II. During the next year and a month, the two got to know each other through the mail. Each letter was a seed falling on a fertile heart. A romance was budding. Blanchard requested a photograph, but she refused. She felt that if he really cared, it wouldn't matter what she looked like. When the day finally came for him to return from Europe, they scheduled their first meeting, 7 o'clock in the evening, at the Grand Central Station in New York. You'll recognize me, she wrote, by the red rose I'll be wearing on my lapel. I'll let Mr. Blanchard tell you what happened. A young woman was coming toward me, her figure long and slim. Her blonde hair lay back in curls from her delicate ears. Her eyes were blue as flowers. Her lips and chin had a gentle firmness, and in her pale green suit she was like springtime come alive. I started toward her, entirely forgetting to notice that she was not wearing a rose. As I moved, a small provocative smile covered her lips. Going my way, sailor, she murmured. Almost uncontrollably, I made one step closer to her, and then I saw Hollis Manel. She was standing almost directly behind the girl, a woman well past 40. She had graying hair tucked under a worn hat. She was more than plump, her thick ankled feet thrust into low-heeled shoes. The girl in the green suit was walking quickly away. I felt as though I was split in two. So keen was my desire to follow the girl, and yet so deep was my longing for the woman whose spirit I had truly companioned, and it had upheld my own. And there she stood. Her pale, plump face was gentle and sensible. Her gray eyes had a warm and kindly twinkle. I did not hesitate. My finger gripped the mail from the blue leather copy of the book that was to identify me to her. This would not be love, but it would be something precious, something perhaps even better than love, a friendship for which I had been and must ever be grateful. I squared my shoulders and saluted and held out the book to the woman, even though while I spoke I felt choked by the bitterness of my disappointment. I'm Lieutenant John Blanchard, and you must be Miss Maynell. I'm so glad you could meet me. May I take you to dinner? The woman's face broadened into a tolerant smile. I don't know what this is all about, son, she answered. But the young lady in the green suit who just went by, she begged me to wear this rose on my coat. She said if you were to ask me out to dinner, I should go and tell you that she's waiting for you in a big restaurant across the street. She said it was some kind of a test. First Samuel sixteen twelve says, David was ruddy with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. It's not that it doesn't matter. It's not that we don't notice. It's not that we don't size things up. But God looks at the heart. David was ruddy. I think that's a good description, apparently. With beautiful eyes 
and a handsome appearance. But God wasn't impressed by that. He looked at the heart. So whether what we see is beautiful and comely and appealing or something other than that, God looks at the heart. So I ask you about what comes your way this week. What do you see before you look? What judgments have already been made? What judgments have been made about people from Pakistan in, in the minds of Canadians? What do they see before they look? What did, what did they see in this lovely family from Pakistan in London? If they had only looked and if they only knew the people that that man, his wife, his daughter, and the grandmother, who they were, how promising they were. But the person that did this couldn't see that. What do we see before we look? James says, just be careful about this. What you see is not what you get all the time. So make sure you go past what you see and realize what it is that you're looking at. Amen.